Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your new employee and A People's Theology host, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with Robin Henderson Espinoza. Robin is a theologian, activist, and author of the recent book, Activist Theology. Robin is also a former guest on this podcast. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Peter M. Peter M. is an experimental rock artist from Minneapolis. You can get connected with both Robin and Peter M. and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. And uh, Dr. Robin, you do lots of things in the world. You're a theologian, you're an activist, you're a writer, uh, and just an all-around badass person. Uh, But who is Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza to Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza? I am a t-shirt wearing, porch sitting, (laughs) freaking love to cook. I love to share a meal. I am a down-home person who, if I can just get a spot of tea or a cup of coffee or iced coffee in the morning, I'm good to go for a conversation. Wow. It sounds like you're as Southern as they come. I am. Well, you know, I was born and raised in Texas, and so that just doesn't leave you. Yeah, right. You're, you're always a Texan no matter what, whether or not right. you're in Nashville. But Right, right. So we talked a little over a year ago last year about this idea of activist theology, and now you have this in a book. Uh, So it's been a year since we've talked. Uh, Since you've released the book, Activist Theology, um, while writing it, what have you learned about theology and what have you learned about uh, activism that you maybe didn't know prior to writing the book? Um. Well, I think that one of the things that I'm learning is that when, when anytime someone makes a critique of the tradition or departs from the tradition, they might come under fire. Mm. And so I, I wasn't expecting that. Um, and I think the thing that I've learned about activism is that we need more than a book about activism. Mm. Um, and, and activist theology, if it, if it remains just in book form, then then it's a failed project. Right. Mm. As a trans person, body deeply matters to you. Your body deeply matters to you. What did your body experience while you were writing your first book? Mm. Gosh, that's such a good question. Um, Well, writing is a very labor-intensive process. Mm. And I felt, you know, I've never wanted to be pregnant or have kids of the biological nature. Mm -hmm. 
but I really felt that writing the book that my body was gestating ideas. Interesting. And, and I don't really know how to explain it other than I felt as I was as I was writing, it was a type of giving birth um, to this idea of theological activism and activist theology. And and there was a particular feeling there associated with that. And I mm. can't really describe it in words other than the language of it felt like something was cooking in me. <laughs> and now, of course, I don't have that um, feeling. I mostly feel very shy and anxious for people to read the book because I'm very curious what people think mm. and um, feel on edge a little bit for people to get their comments back to me. But I, I am very curious about, about people's response to the book um, and, and both writing the book and sort of postpartum um, the book, <laughs> there is this body, this somatic response that I'm having. And I think that's interesting as someone who lives in the head all the time and, and has struggled with being embodied. Um, in fact, my next book is going to be on the concepts of becoming embodied mm. and, and thinking about democracy from the place of embodiment. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Does it feel like that new book then uh, that you're writing, does that feel similar or any different to the sort of, if you will, pregnancy of that first book? Yeah, it does. It feels like I'm pregnant with ideas and it feels like I'm gestating and it feels like this is an, a natural next step to activist theology to talk about embodiment. Because if, if you read the book, you, there, there are hints to embodiment, but there isn't a real grounding of embodiment mm. in the book. It's a lot of um, theory. It's a lot of um, moving into action, which certainly requires the body but there isn't an explicit turn to embodiment. And so this next book is an explicit turn to, mm -hmm. to embodiment and a sort of somatic activist theology, if you will. It feels like a, like a natural sequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I noticed really early on in the book is that you stress that knowing one's own narrative and stories are incredibly critical for theological reflection. What are maybe some recent narratives and stories that have shaped your particular theological imagination? Mm. I've been, you know, we're in, we're in Advent right now while we're recording this. Mm. And so I've been thinking a lot about resistance. Mm -hmm. um, we've just had Thanksgiving, um, which is a complicated holiday for the United States. Um, one where we have privileged erasure of indigenous narratives and so as a mixed race Latinx who is born of European, Spanish, Mexican, and Anglo heritage, I've been thinking a lot about um, what does it mean to be mixed race mm. um, in, a, in a time when we're hoping for something different. Um, I've also been thinking about the narratives of intention. Uh, we will in January, you know, we will mark a new year, a new decade. And so what does it mean for me to have intention to mark um, the new year with intention? What are my intentions? Mm. Um, so the narratives that have been bubbling up for me are ones about hospitality and resistance. Mm. Mm. Um, and I have been having a lot of dreams about my dead father, um, who was the, who was the white side of my family. and 
you know, I don't know what to do with with those dreams, nor do I know what to do with the narratives of hospitality or resistance. But I know that we are in a time of hoping for something different. And so mm. um, I, I am preaching during Advent on on Advent as resistance. So I'm sure that there will be the the narratives will continue to bubble up and hopefully I'll have a clear picture um you know by the time advent is over mm-hmm. but those are the things that are bubbling up for me mm-hmm. hospitality and resistance i think one of the beautiful things about the christian tradition is that at least liturgically it structures itself around story and narrative right there's the whole arc and then not only that but it's this story that we live into and we participate in um regularly and repeatably there, you know, there, there's sort of this like um, seasonal cycle to it that uh, that we participate in, and it, you know that captures our theological imaginations as well. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that Christianity certainly has to offer. Um, my next question is, you mentioned that the work, the activity of activist theology is not new, uh, but the name maybe was this sort of sexy or trendy thing that you were thinking of. Um, but I'm really curious, th- there must be a reason that you were really compelled by that particular term, activist theology, beyond it being maybe sexy and trendy. Um, so what about that particular word in that term is really compelling to you? Hmm. It's a great question. And I, as a storyteller, I will appeal to story. Um, mm, I love it. I, I think that I, I knew that people were dying. Mm. And in order for us to make a productive intervention in what's happening in the world, storytelling is the thing that feminists have been doing for a long time, uh, indigenous people have been doing for a long time. And I felt that U.S. liberation theology needed some type of framework. And I think what was compelling about activist theology is that that might be a framework to talk about U.S. liberation theology. Um, how do we talk about mobilizing for radical social change? Well, through activism and theology, because if everything is theological and if everything relates to our social practices, uh, then how do we, how do we mobilize people to build the kind of world we want to inhabit? That to me is activist theology. Mm. One of the things that comes up, uh, as you're saying that is the sort of need for theological reflection for good activism to be had. Um, Maybe you've gotten this uh, from people who have read your book that maybe are like non-religious people, but what are their maybe thoughts, or maybe you've encountered this, where people who are non-religious or maybe don't particularly think about theology, um, but deeply care about activism, how do they think about maybe this, um, the 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 offering that you make in this book of 
thinking about theology in the perspective of activism Activist or thinking about theology, theology that like that think about that it's a particular book i mean it's it's situated within the christian tradition mm -hmm. and i did that on purpose because those are my roots and so if if activist theology is about getting to the roots of who we are then i had to deal with my own roots um when i talk with non-religious people um I, you know it's on sort of all sides of the coin hmm. it, for a lot of people, they're compelled by the book. And then there's just some people who they don't understand some of the concepts because it's so it's such insider language. Mm. Um, but the stories that I share resonate with people. Yeah. Um, and, and that feels good. I, I, I feel, you know, I guess I wonder now, is there a way, is there a way to talk about the liturgical calendar? without saying the language holy saturday yeah well i don't know because that's a particular narrative that paints a particular picture that has a particular narrative arc to it so um you know i was interviewed by a jewish scholar a couple months ago and you know she she said i just didn't know what holy saturday was mm. and i'm and i'm like yeah that's a great that's a great question. And also that's inside total insider language. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I guess for those who are non-religious who might be encountering my book, you know, they may feel, yeah, this is a language that I don't understand. Or what does this have to do? Why is Saturday holy? You know, mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, non-religious folks reached out and have appreciated the work. And, you know, I just feel delighted that one person was reading it, <laughs> let alone, I mean, I just found out they're on their second run of the printing. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So that's, that's exciting to know. Yeah. That's awesome. You've kind of alluded to this a bit, um, but I'd love to deep dive deeply into it. We live in a world where dominant systems attempt to repress potentially um, or potential oppressed systems that may be embedded within even that dominant system. So, for example, you talked about uh, in the book about being white passing, um, but you're also part of your identity is that you're Latinx. Uh, mm -hmm. How does reclaiming your Latinx heritage transform how you perce perceive yourself and how even others may even perceive you? Mm. Well. We know that when we do inner work, we not only change ourselves, but we change the world. And so the reclamation isn't always outer focus. Mm. It isn't always going to be talked about. Um, and that's by design. Um, I, I, I will always say that I'm born of a Mexican woman out of this country. That is true. And the rest of my reclamation work and reclaiming the narratives of the Latinx people of the U.S., the Chicano people, the Tejano people, um, that that's all just inner work that will inform my moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know that that necessarily needs to be talked about other than it's deep spirit work. Uh, as a mixed race person, I have inclinations to indigenous spirituality and normative spirituality that exists here in the United States. And so where do I feed my soul? Um, 
where do I feed the, the thought of wanting to connect with the divine? Um, that's reclamation work, that's spirit work, and, and that is about, I think, the path that I'm on. Mm. Um, and, and, and it is very much about um, living the best life that I can as a mixed race Latinx. But it also doesn't mean that I walk around with a Mexican flag, you know, hanging from my, my windshield mm -hmm. because I'm not trying to promote nationalism in that mm. sense, right? Um, so those are my thoughts. You talk about theology that is done in spaces where theology is often not thought about being done, um, places like protests, uh, organizing movements, etc. What is it about these spaces that engender rich theological reflection than maybe even in the structures of the church or even the academy? Well, I mean, I think that I'm trained as a theologian, so I think everything is theological. Mm. Um, <laughs> And, and, and so I can't, I can't, I can't not think about theology when I'm in activist spaces, because I'm thinking about relationship, I'm thinking about virtue, I'm thinking about social practices, I'm thinking about how are we treating one another, and are we creating an oppositional frame, or are we creating... Um, a relationality that is rooted in kindness and compassion, love and hospitality. Those are all theological themes for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think about these things when I'm, when I'm out on the streets or if I'm helping the um, open table Nashville drive the van or canvassing. Um, I think about um, theologically what is the impact on this on this kind of action to our theology and if and if we are not changed by the suffering of the world and if we are not changed by what we see on our 24-hour news cycle then we may have a theology that is impenetrable mm -hmm. and so so we always have to be thinking about theology and activism wedded together braided together um if you will um, in the same way that the the Trinity is talked about as the perichoretic dance, as the yeah. interpenetration, in a, in, interpenetrative reality, if you will. That is how serious I take the relationship between theology and activism. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is a somewhat similar question, but what does an activist ecclesiology look like? Mm. Yeah, I, it's interesting that you say this because I've been talking with um, my friend Josh Scott, who pastors Grace Point Church down mm -hmm. here, and we've been talking about how do we actually mobilize people? And um, I think an activist ecclesiology is, 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 is really the work of the people, is, is really thinking liturgically um, about how to mobilize people. Mm. And 
that may be feeding people on a holiday that might, I mean, I just had a cocktail party for the holidays and I did it as a winter drive for Open Table Nashville. And I asked people to bring priority items for Open Table Nashville. That to me feels like an activist ecclesiology. You were at Charlottesville in August of 2017, um, protesting the Unite the Right rally. Mm -hmm. Did you sense that sort of church-like feel with the other clergy and and church people there uh, when, as you were protesting? Did that sort of feel like an ecclesial structure, um, if you will? I mean, there was certainly a um, a togetherness that I think many of us Mm. shared, but there was a lot of fear and fright. Um, along mm. with that. And so um, I, I don't know that I would say it felt ecclesial. So, um, but maybe that's what ecclesiology is, right? I mean, I mm. mean, um, certainly we've had schism in our tradition and we found a way to bridge together. So. Mm-hmm. You briefly talk about this in your book, but how does social media change the way in which protests and advocation for social change uh, happen uh, now than maybe in the past uh, prior to social media? Well, I think social media has really um, upped the ante. Um, now you mm. can put things live on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And so you can watch what's happening. And uh, if you see it, you can make a decision to get involved, repost or what have you. And so I think it has shifted the game a bit. and and you know, there's a way that those tweets or the IGTV or the Facebook lives, um, they're there in the catalog mm-hmm. of social media. And so uh, uh, unless unless we have a government that scrubs the, those platforms, it, it's hard to, den- to deny a historical memory of of um, police brutality, of anti-blackness, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we live in a we live in a country, or we live in a world rather, where governments do scrub the the internet. And you know, you in China, for example, uh, Tiananmen Square, they have no historical memory of that um, the mm-hmm. massacre in Tiananmen Square, and so the oppressor is trying to silence everyone who is trying to take it down so Today I have Peter M. And Peter, you uh, you have like a really interesting sound for being a person who I think I would imagine for the most part is a solo artist. Um. Yeah. Well, kind of. Yeah. I mean, I play in a couple of other bands, and uh, I'm releasing a bunch of stuff under my own name. Right. Uh, Peter M. Just sort of as like a. Yeah, some of it's like solo artist, singer songwritery writery stuff, and then I've been interested in making really weird, wacky stuff too. But um, yeah. Um. So one of the things I really appreciate about your sound 
is, you know, despite the fact that like the music that we have featured on this episode is your more solo stuff. What I really like about it is how um, how much sound you actually are creating. Like there, there are so many little intricate pieces here and there. Uh, to be honest, it's really close to and maybe you will take this the right way, hopefully, but it really sounds a lot like Radiohead in a lot of ways. Like there's this experimental nature to it uh, and there's this eclecticness to it. And I really, really appreciate that about this particular sound, especially knowing that it's kind of coming from just one person's mind. Uh, What are, what's kind of the, like the motive or the impetus around kind of this experimental nature uh, where I don't know, maybe you're trying to replicate Radiohead, or maybe you're trying to do your mm. own thing. But what's this sort of motive or the impetus around that kind of experimental nature that yeah. I, I think is sort of the framing sound of your music? Um, yeah, I think one of the main things, particularly with this this piece, uh, an updated ontology, is uh, I had this idea to start a re- recording and. Um, kind of continue adding to it forever and um the thought being i would just you know i'd sit in my basement studio lay down a bunch of tracks leave it for a few months and then come back and kind of be like collaborating with my past self Mm -hmm. and um as i kept doing that it just sort of there are more and more layers that were kind of coming together and then you know, a particular movement of the piece would feel like it would come to an end and move in a different direction. And I think, um, yeah, it, this might sound corny, but in a way I think it's like, it was just like being in a band with all these versions of myself, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of where all these layers come from. And, uh, and how, you know, there in this particular piece, there are three movements and like, um, uh, I think it kind of just comes about from like, you know, I recorded the piece over the uh, course of three years and just kind of like, by the time I got to the second movement, I was ready to do something really different with it. And mm. um, yeah, uh, but I do, I really appreciate that comparison too, because I love Radiohead and I love, yeah, I love their stuff. So as one should, nice as hear. one certainly should. <laughs> so you kind of mentioned here that these movements, these songs took a long time to make. Um, and yeah. I'm sure as a person you're, you're growing, um, not only personally, but in, in your prowess as a musician, um, d- do you hear that difference of years in the recordings at all? Or, uh, or do you feel like you've really been able to enmesh them as one collective unit as if you recorded them back to back to back in a, you know, in a short time period? That's that's a good question. I haven't really like listened to it with that um <clears throat> sense of like, you know, have I progressed as a musician? But one one sort of progression I've definitely noticed with it is more of a, a conceptual one where like mm. uh you know, it's this song started out as like um I'm kind of like occupying the voice of God as I understand or experience God to be, which Mm -hmm. uh, is like uh, the sort of like watchmaker God, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. God kind of constructs the world and then pieces out. And, uh, um, and it's interesting, like as I was working on the third movement, which is entirely instrumental, uh, like, 
my conception of God and the world like was starting to shift. And, you know, I would consider myself essentially an agnostic, uh, mm-hmm. but um, towards the end of this piece, I started sort of having this like sense of uh, like that I was writing this tune in order to like, uh, how do I say this? Like uh, this song is sort of like the apology that I want from God, mm. or at least this idea of God I grew up with. And I didn't really realize that early on, um, but it, it's like not until really the song is all done and I was listening to it. And uh, I think I was like rereading Annie Dillard's collection of essays, uh, teaching a stone to talk and okay. like, um, uh, and anyway, you know, it just sort of, it, it dawned on me that I'm like, oh, this is like what I want God to say to me, which is, uh, Hey, like I kind of created the world to sort of, uh, affirm my own existence <laughs> and I've made some mistakes and I'm sorry about that, mm. you know? And, um, yeah. And that, that's just sort of like, it's in some ways ended up being this sort of like emotional thing that I needed. And I, I didn't recognize that on the outset. So, uh, yeah. One of the things I'm I'm curious about is for the tracks that do have, uh, vocals on them, it sounds like the vocals are really manipulated. Um, Mm -hmm. there's like a lot of effect put on them. I I'm curious. I, I know, other artists will do something similar because they may feel self-conscious about their vocals. I'm not sure mm. if, if, or if not, that is the case for you, but I, I'm curious if, uh, if you feel like that sort of manipulation, that effect on your vocals adds really a layer to the music, or maybe, I don't know if you want to be honest, maybe there is sort of a layer to you where you're, kind of self-conscious about your vocals and you mm. want to add that layer and it feels like okay out of all the 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 way I could do my vocals this one feels right. like I'm most confident with like uh, anyway is there any of that that's going on with uh your vocal production on these on these tracks yeah man I'd have to think more about the sort of like confidence in self sort of stuff um my on the outset like my main reason for having really affected vocals particularly in the first movement is that like i am like really it's like an opera like i'm playing you know i'm singing the character of god and it's like multi you know layered uh sort of like multi voices all happening at the same time mm-hmm. and um and that's sort of like uh uh it's a conceptual choice um right but I, I would not be surprised if there's something, <laughs> if deep down I'm like, oh, I'm scared to. Somewhere yeah, in the subconscious. Sound. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and in the second movement, there's vocals that are just a bit more stripped back and um, a bit more bare. And that also is sort of a conceptual artistic choice. But, mm-hmm. um, and it's just, I don't know, it's just fun messing around with totally. all the effects too. Yeah. So, um, and it changes how like, how I sing, you know, if I'm singing through the mic and it's going being processed through a bunch of effects, I just find myself singing in a way that I, I otherwise would not. Mm. And that's really fun. And, Mm -hmm. uh, it feels playful, you know? I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious about, uh, 
are you in the process of making some more music? Uh, are you planning to do some touring or playing some shows, maybe some local shows? Uh, but what's sort of in the works for you uh, in terms of music? Are you recording, yeah. touring around, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, um, I'm keeping pretty busy. Uh, I mean, right now I'm talking to you from Peoria, Illinois, and I'm uh, uh, at the halfway point in a 10-day tour throughout the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, my my main project is a band called We Are the Willows. Okay. And um, we just finished recording our third record, and we'll be putting that out in May. And that's sort of like a a five-piece, like, orchestral indie rock outfit Mm. and um uh yeah so we're going to be touring a bunch uh and then i i really like touring solo too as a way to like keep playing shows getting better at playing songs and um i just i like being on the road a lot but uh and as, as far as peter m songs go i've been sort of releasing them just in these little spurts with like you know two two to five songs on a recording Mm -hmm. and they're all kind of like chronicled you know it's just the first Mm -hmm. release i had is called songs one Mm -hmm. second one is songs two and this one's songs four and uh i i'm just gonna keep doing that releasing them in small batches and um you know the solo project has really felt like a space where i can just do whatever i want um I think the next release is just going to be like all acapella, like just oh, voices, you know, big built up voice things. And um, yeah. And so um, I want to keep doing that. And like, you know, this piece, an updated ontology, like, and it's, you know, when it's, when you listen to the whole thing all together, it's like eight minutes long. And it's, I think lots of folks would say, you know, yes. <laughs> You, from an industry standpoint you have no business releasing an eight minute song yeah. in this day and age but uh <laughs> that's kind of the point for me with this project is to just do stuff that feels creatively satisfying and kind of disregard the market mm. and mm-hmm. um and so my aim is to continue doing that and to continue just kind of searching for stuff and uh yeah that's great well, I really appreciated the music. Uh, as a fellow Radiohead fan, I was pleasantly surprised to, to hear you know somebody out there, uh, not to mention from Minneapolis, is making music that to me kind of has that reminiscence of a, of a Radiohead vibe. And uh, anybody who's able to kind of tap into the complexity and the intri- oh, I always mess up this word, but anyway, the complexity <laughs> of Radiohead. Um, yeah, I, I am a big fan of whoever's work that is so uh i i really appreciate the the sound and i appreciate that you've uh you decided to be on the podcast well thanks for having me and it means a lot that you like the tunes
I, I recently took a course on activism and social organizing, uh, especially within a like faith-based perspective. One of the things that I learned from this course was the sort of different approaches of social organizing. There is the m- approach that's more of the, um, for lack of a better term, like a fo- the photo op and kind of uh, the the organizing to kind of create the the cry that ends up getting a lot of the the clicks yep. in a lot of the media, but then there's also the kind of organizing and sometimes these movements uh, or these different approaches end up uh, sort of rivaling each other. Uh, but then the other one is those kind of infiltrate within the council meetings. They're the ones that are trying to uh, to talk to the the representatives and those who are in power. Where do you sort of maybe find yourself in that world and and maybe those two camps um, if you do at all? And then where do you sense like activist theology maybe attempting to find itself in one particular approach or maybe trying to um, to hold both approaches? Yeah, I mean, I. um, I mean, I get what you're saying about the photo opportunity. Um, and I can point to several examples about during the Ferguson uprising, photo ops and whatnot. Um, but I, I think that that is um, not, not necessarily being a revolutionary. Mm. Um, so I would not say that myself nor activist theology or the Activist Theology Project um, is inclined for the photo op. Mm. Um, I, I would say th- though you can find footage of me on MSNBC being evacuated from the corner of second water. I mean, that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I would, I would more say that activist theology is a strategy for how to be engaged in both relationship and activism, mm-hmm. um, from a theological perspective, from an ethical perspective. And I would want to advocate the, the relational side because the photo op feels very transactional to me and Mm. so i am trying to do culture shift work i'm trying to do mindset shift work and so um that's that's greater than a photo op um it's more than a podcast i mean the reason why i do so many podcasts is because it's a it's a moment for me to really tell the the truest story about activist theology Mm. um that doesn't require me to be on a stage in front of a whole bunch of people. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so it appeals to my introverted self where mm. I could do storytelling, where I can actually have a conversation with someone who cares about the work instead of being on a stage and giving a talk. Mm-hmm. And so this feels way more relational. And, you know, I end up hearing from people from the podcasts that, that I do and people reach out and people, we, I have conversation and that feels like the culture shift work. That mm-hmm. feels like the work that I want to be doing. Um, the Activist Theology Project is an attempt to incubate sustainable change by responding to the needs of the world. We, we like to do this through education and through mm-hmm. learning resources. So the book is one resource, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I know that a lot of people are wanting... Um, the click, you know, they, we create this clickbait, um, but that's actually not changing culture, mm-hmm. right? It's keeping people glued to their phones. And what we need to do is harness a moral imagination for, for a type of justice that is transformative and not transactional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
One of the things I noticed about the book is that you cite and share many pieces of art throughout it. Um, even uh, the ending, you, you had a whole lot of poetry. Um, how does art captivate the activist and theological imagination? Well, I, I mean, I'll just give it to you straight. I believe art is part of the revolution and mm. art is part of social healing. And, and we don't pay enough attention to art and we don't pay enough attention to the ways in which art can actually heal the divides. I mean, just think about how people do art therapy and are, um, are in the hospital doing art therapy or outpatient doing art therapy that is actually healing people. Yeah. Um, and so why not? You know, I'm just like, let's throw it all together and make it, make it something worth looking at. Um, and can we, can we create social healing, folds of social healing through this? I think so. Mm -hmm. Are there any recent pieces of art that uh, really inspired maybe your activist or theological imagination? I was at a conference um, in, in Charlotte and saw some amazing art there um, by Bree Stallings. And I thought, wow, that, that would be amazing to have some of that. And then also was at Nevertheless She Preached in September mm -hmm. and um, saw some cool art there and brought home some art from there. And I just think that we need to make the world more beautiful. And mm -hmm. when we do that, we find healing. It may seem very obvious, uh, but how is activist theology inspiring and liberating theological work? Well, um, <clears throat> I think that I think that it's inspiring theological work by a return to story, mm. and I think that it's inspiring theological work to think about ourselves in relation to other, and in relationship to the larger Christian tradition. Um, where do we fit in this story? Um, we fit by being in community. Okay, well, how do we create a community of radical difference? How do we create a community that that feeds on um, the wisdom and the truth and the beauty of one another? Um, we do that through um, relational love and compassion. We do that through relational work. Um, and I think it's inspiring theological work to to a return to listen and a return mm. to love. Um, and that's been a big surprise. Mm. I love that. Well, Dr. Robin, I I just love this conversation. I, and I love the book, uh, including on top of all the storytelling. You're such a great storyteller. But the, the cover art is just beautiful, too. It's like the stamping and everything. Oh, yeah, I love it. Yeah. I, do you do you know the artist? Was that was that I don't know, I don't or? know the artist. I don't know the artist uh, that was chosen for me. And they they ran it by me. And um, it took me a while to to be settled on it. Um, but it's grown on me and I like it. I really do too. Uh, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? So certainly buy the book and wherever books are sold, but I like to push out Indie Hound mm. and that's, that's a place where independent booksellers um, are listed. And um, my book is being carried by a bunch of independent booksellers, which is great. Um, and um, you can find me online at irobin.com. That's the letter I R O B Y N.com. You can find me on Twitter at irobin and also on Instagram at irobin.
Well, thank you so much. I just love having this conversation uh, and uh, we're connected to a lot of the same people. And uh, I don't know if we've ever come across each other in, uh, in, the, in person, but I hopefully that happens soon. Hopefully soon we can make that happen. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. If you would like to connect with both Robin and Peter M. and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>